An important part of academic work has to do with publishing. But how do we choose what to submit to which journal? About this and many other interesting topics is this conversation with Amy Gonzalez from the University of California at Santa Barbara in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome, everybody, to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us Amy Gonzalez, who is an associate professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Um, before that, she was an assistant professor at Indiana University. And before that, she was a Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. Amy got her BA in psychology at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, and then an MS in communication at Cornell, an MA in psychology at UT Austin, and a PhD in communication at Cornell. Amy has been exceedingly prolific. She has more than two dozen articles, usually in the very, very top journals of the field, such as Journal of Communication, the Media Society, etc. She also has a lot of uh, work published in computer science conference proceedings, has been very, very successful in the grant getting arena. Most recently, the most recent grant, which is almost $400,000, is for a study where she is PI and is about building social capital in low income communities of color. Amy Gonzalez, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you for having me, Pablo. I'm so happy to be here. Delighted to have you with us, my friend. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Mm, yeah, well, my parents don't have college degrees, but I, my best friend in high school, her parents were professors, um, one at the local junior college and one at the Cal State. And I thought it looked like a good gig seemed like, you know, they swam by the pool when they wanted in the summer and worked when they wanted. And I was kind of a consummate nerd. And it seemed like, you know, doing school forever with a relatively flexible schedule seemed like a good idea. So I, I think I actually had the desire to, to perhaps pursue the career before I even knew exactly which questions I wanted to ask. Um, and in fact, I had never taken a communication course as an undergraduate, but after getting my psych degree and thinking I maybe wanted to go into psychology and, and, then, and then realizing, well, first thinking maybe I wanted to be a psychologist and then realizing that I'm a terrible listener and that would be bad for everybody involved. I took some time off and did just random 
kind of odd jobs. I worked at the Gap. I did substitute teaching. I was a medical translator. I feel bad for those people who <laughs> me as a translator. But I, I, um, I then went back and thought I was going to create this kind of interdisciplinary master's program at the Cal State where I was living, and started talking to people in psych and neuroscience about kind of. Um, what were essentially symbolic interactionist questions, right? How do we kind of create our sense of reality through our social interactions was a really interesting question to me. And as I talked to people, um, it was various professors there that said, you know, you really should look at the fields of communication. And so I applied broadly and somewhat blindly and Jeff Hancock at Cornell was kind enough <laughs> to, you know, let me in despite my, complete lack of capital or expertise in, in knowing, you know, really what I was getting into. Um, but, uh, I, you know, when I applied to the program, I think my application actually discussed kind of an interest in, the, yeah, the ways that we kind of create our sense of reality through our self-presentations. And so that ended up becoming the first question that I really studied. Um, but kind of applying those ideas to an online context in a time when blog, I think was word of the year at Time Magazine in the year that I started graduate school in um, 2004. And so kind of taking those ideas and then applying them to what seemed like the obvious kind of context of relevance at the day, which was, you know, the internet and kind of asking, you know, these, these symbolic interactionist questions in an internet context seemed kind of a, an interesting way to take questions of interest to me and applying them to what mattered to the world at that time. So, I don't know. Interesting. So, and then you went to Cornell first for a master's degree? Yeah. Or you went for a PhD and you got the master's along the way? Uh, it, you know, Cornell, I think our comm programs seem to do this really differently, you know, but um, at Cornell at the time, Every, if you didn't have a master's, you had to get the terminal master's. I think now maybe you don't have to, but I don't know how Northwestern does it. But and I, I didn't have a master's, so you know I had to reapply to the PhD at Cornell, and so I felt like I should hedge my hedge my bets. It wasn't obvious to me that they would let me keep doing that, and so I applied also to psych programs, um, and got in at, to the psych program at UT Austin to work with Jamie Pennebaker, who is kind of this preeminent scholar in some of the, you know, in, of uh, understanding how this self-expression and the spoken word through kind of his um, expressive writing paradigm has all of these fascinating implications for health and well-being. And so that's what I went there to study with him. And then when I got there, I realized that he, you know, he was on to bigger and better things, doing a lot of natural language processing, which was less interesting to me. And so I, I loved him and the program, but realized that he wasn't really, he was focused elsewhere. Um, and so I then returned to Cornell um, to after just turning what was supposed to be a PhD in psych at Texas into just another master's and then went back and worked, decided to go back to, to, to doing what I'd been doing at Cornell. So the decision was less based on fields and more on mentors, it seems to me. Mentors, fields, love. <laughs> there is a relationship that played a small role. But yeah, mentors and kind of questions of interest. Again, I was really interested in Jamie's um, Pennebaker's really early questions of how um, expressive writing, if you do it for 15 minutes a day, um, kind of stream of consciousness, for three days in a row, 
people take less Advil, they go to the doctor less, they report fewer headaches. There's all of these just really impressive physical health implications. And I was really interested in kind of the underlying questions behind that. Again, I think has some, some kind of symbolic interaction, although also some kind of Freudian origins. But um, he just wasn't, you know, yes, question of mentors because he, he was doing different things. And so uh, I think Jeff was gonna give me the space to ask, ask continue to ask the questions that mattered. Um, and Jeff was uh, Hancock, um, who's now at Stanford, did a really amazing job of really helping to train me because again, I was just, you know, pretty green when I started um, as a grad student, but also gave me a long leash. Um, which I, I found really worked well, really let me drive the questions, um, but, but still, but was, but still a very uh, hands-on as I needed mentorship. So, yeah. So how was the experience of grad school in general? Yeah. Um, how was the experience? That's, I don't, how was your experience? Of grad school in general? I don't know. That's such an intense and, and hard to answer question. I, I will say, I guess, for me, it was kind of my like coming of age personally. I felt like I was suddenly around people who were playful, but also cared about intellectual activities and knew how to combine those. And I just felt suddenly at home for the first time in my life. So it, it was really a, a really amazing experience. And I loved Cornell. People have really, you know, they kind of love it or hate it. Not, not specifically the program. I just mean being in Ithaca, you're so far away from everything. And people kind of love or hate that, and, and I loved it. So, um, but you know, I also, Jamie Pendergager used to say, and I, I tell people this often, especially grad students, that um, uh, graduate school and graduate education is really the closest thing that contemporary society, society has to the feudal system. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's something very, it's just, it's, you know, progressive in thought, hopefully, but very archaic in structure. And that didn't, I don't think I personally suffered as much as many, but you know, it can be a pretty um, marginalizing experience. The graduate student is staff when they need to be and student when they need to be, you know, they kind of live in this institutionally liminal space. And so I think that can be hard for all graduate students um, based on what I observe. For me, it was pretty good though, yeah. Okay, and do you, still, do you miss the farmer's market? <laughs> I miss so much of Ithaca. I miss the waterfalls and I miss the gorges. The gorges are gorgeous, it's true. <laughs> so, so then you are wrapping up your PhD, you go on the market. I know that for a fact, because I chaired the search committee that was unfortunate enough not to be able to recruit you uh, <laughs> way back when. Um, um, I'm still sort of upset about not having been able to recruit you to Northwestern, but that's a different story. Um, how was We're not dead yet, Pablo. You never know. You never know. Absolutely. <laughs> so far. Um, so how was your experience now that time has passed? How, how was your experience on the, on the job market the first time around? Yeah, well, knowing that quite a few listeners might be in that position or around, you know, thinking about that experience or maybe even have a job, but know they're not done yet, you know. I will say that it was one of the most difficult experiences of my life. I don't pull my punches when I when I talk to grad students. And then I mean that only to just emotionally prepare them that 
for me, the best part of the job market was that I knew it would end eventually. And not because it's not amazing to go and talk to people like you. And, and you know, I've had other mentors say things like, maybe you feel this way. You know, no one is going to show as much interest in you as a scholar as they do at that time in your life. And so there's something so precious. But I think, you know, as a um, underrepresented minority, you know, my father is Mexican, I'm Latina, and many of your listeners probably will be. I think that, you know, there's good data that says, from what I understand, you know, we get, we get more interviews and fewer offers. And so you're just doing double the work, you know? And the reality is the job market is when it's bad, it's bad. But when it's good, it's bad because it's just so grueling. Um, I, I actually always say also that a lot of Amy, Amyisms apparently on this podcast so far, but um, that not until I um, had, was, was experienced my first five months of pregnancy, which I, I was nauseous every day, all day for five months, did I experience something as traumatic as the academic job market? <laughs> wow. I, I personally, you know, this is the thing, Pablo. Um, it's not that it's not amazing and exhilarating, but for me, I, you know, my strength as a scholar is certainly not in my um, uh, diplomacy. I'm, I'm not good at the presentation of, of this job, of academia. I, you know, I like the writing. That's why I'm part of why I'm here. I like the thinking. Um, the, the public aspect of it is very, is not natural to me. And to, to try to be on for, for you know, was, was is very, very difficult for me. I'm used to it now, you know, having done it for many years, it feels less stressful, but um, it's a performance. It's a game that you have to play and you, 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 you can't stop for those three days that you're playing it. And um, I mean, maybe that feels kind of crass to put it that way, but I, I think it, I think thinking of it that way as something that you just have to enact um, is really the best way to, to do that job. But maybe other people are better at it than me. I don't know. And if you were, no, you were excellent. I mean, you, you, I mean, you have multiple possibilities and, and all of that. So, so if you were to sort of give some do's and don'ts, yeah, what would you say? Well, okay. But I know that this is supposed to be an interview, so I appreciate that. And I will try to keep the conversation on me, but I'm curious, do you, does this resonate with you? Like, does this make sense to you? Or do you think I'm insane for, for kind of like in your experience, mm -hmm. having been on the market now, did you also find it to be difficult and traumatic or was, is this something that you have always found to be much less? It, so personally for me, it was draining mm. more than traumatic. Mm. Um, and I could not believe that it was happening. Yeah. So I just went along and yeah. uh, thinking, well, sure, somebody wants to talk to me and talk to them, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and then when you are there, the first time you realize how yeah. tough it is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the sleeplessness and the, I should have, would have said, you know, this, that, yeah. next time I would. Yeah. Uh, and second guessing questions, etc. But yeah. no, I, I agree. I, I did not experience it as traumatic. I mean, yeah. I'm a white male. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. yeah. And so that my positionality in that sense is a privilege. Yeah. Um, and um, I, but overall, I was in disbelief, essentially. Yeah. So and do, again, now I'm interviewing you. Do your parents, are your parents professionals? Like, do you? So my, my mother finished middle school. 
Mm. Mm. Um, oh, but, so left high school at the point in which you would end middle school in the US. Yeah. So okay. we don't have middle school, right? Got but she, she finished eighth grade mm. and tried to finish high school. When I was in high school, we studied together and mm. it was very difficult for her. So she didn't mm. do it. Wow. And uh, my dad finished college when I was six and he was 45. Wow. Um, so, um, so I went to his commencement. I still remember and I remember the place, my location in the theater. It's a public theater in downtown Buenos Aires. So he was a CPA. Yeah. Um, so he, he, he was the main breadwinner of his household since age 15. Yeah. Uh, very, very poor background. So he yeah. did not. So he made a point of first making money and then getting. So it took him, you know, yeah. from age 18 to 45, that's 27 years to finish college. Wow. Um, so, so yeah. So I'm an improbable sort of outcome. Yeah of yeah. uh, the public education system in Argentina. Um, so no, that's why for me it was a wow, people want to talk to me? Sure, I will talk to them, but, yeah. but it was very draining. It was exhausting. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, but at least I have education modeled in that way, right? The, the labor of education modeled in real time for you. That must have been really incredible. My parents valued it, absolutely. My dad was very much of the generation like this will you know, you, I mean, not generation, this is an ethos, right, among, among many, but, you know, education will, will be your means of social mobility, and because I took to it, 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 that felt like I was very supported, but they, but my family community at large, and I have a very large family, you know, immediately, and, and my parents are both one of many, you know, like, are not, uh, I, I, there's very few of us that have, um, you know, graduate degrees of any sort or even college degrees. And so I think that, and, and the cult, the, so the, I don't know, I, the, that idea though, of sitting around and having someone want to talk to you about, you know, intellectual things, it felt, um, almost like it was hard for me to shed the feeling like I was being pretentious perhaps right, for kind of wanting to just sit around and talk about ideas. I think that there was a, you know, that was that was just not something we did in, in my family. We didn't talk about um, even politics in that way, right, um, really. So I come from a very religious family too. So that, that might have shaped that. So I think that I, I loved it, but it, it was really hard. I felt like I was, yeah, like it, it was pretending and it, it felt almost a little bit like I was, um, a little bit like I was doing something wrong almost, you know, like I, and, but, but I had to kind of embrace that. So the do's and don'ts to go back to your question. I think the thing that made, um, uh, finally convinced UCSB, I, I applied here twice, um, finally convinced them to hire me. One, one book that I really recommend was, um, oh, her name is going to escape me, but, um, because apparently names and words are escaping me this, um, morning but she writes the professor is in Karen Kelsky and she has a blog and she's um kind of well known in kind of um the the kind of academic sphere as a writer of kind of the academic socialization process but she wrote a book based on kind of this um her kind of years of experience I mean I think she can works works as a consultant even and I found her book to be incredibly useful um, so I would strongly recommend that book and I do give it to all of my grad students and it just, you know, kind of um, forces you to synthesize or forced me to synthesize 
um, myself kind of think, think of myself as a package that I was marketing, right. When I was on, on the job market, when you're at these interviews, recognize that you are your product and to kind of strategically think through the ways that then you have to market that product. Um, again, for me that I found that really helpful. Um, that's, that's my biggest recommendation. Do I have other do's and don'ts? Yeah, I think don't, um, I mean, again, this is probably something that most people wouldn't do, but I was too naive or, or silly to, to um, think that you could just completely relax, <laughs> completely relax. I think my first few interviews, I thought, well, my product is what I've put on the page, right? That's what we're getting paid to do is write journal articles that other people read. And we teach in the classroom, of course, but apart from that, you know, what I say at dinner is just a matter of, you know, shooting the breeze and, and figuring out if this colleague is a nice person and recognizing, no, that kind of every moment of one of these things is um, kind of a, an assessment of your intellectual breadth and depth. Um, I think I didn't fully appreciate that until many years in. So what, for whatever reason, but, um, but that, that book was really helpful. So um, yeah, bear down, it'll be over <laughs> and, and accept that it's going to be painful. That's my only words of wisdom. <laughs> really good. And and how was the transition to the classroom for you and to being a faculty? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm still I'm still figuring that out, you know, teaching. I'm very comfortable in front of a crowd, but I think maybe sometimes too comfortable. I tend to be a bit wandering in my speech. I'm not a very clear speaker or precise you know, sometimes in my oral presentation so that that can get me in trouble. I think I'm a fine teacher, but I, I'm still trying to figure out ways to give my students the, the best, you know, use of their time and money. <laughs> um, but uh, so it doesn't feel it doesn't feel hard, but it doesn't mean I necessarily, you know, excel at it um, at, at teaching. I am now in a department with just absurdly good teachers. So, you know, my evaluations are always fine and you know sometimes a little bit above average and I'm with people who just around people um who just are just like get perfect evaluations every every quarter every time they're just these absurd yes I know I'm I'm surrounded by people that constantly um make me want to rise to the, to the challenge so which is great that's a great place to be so um but I I like teaching I like undergraduates it's a fun age of people to be around you know they're fun to talk to and um, being a faculty, I will say that being a postdoc really helped with that um, imposter syndrome that I think a lot of faculty feel their first year. So for me, because I think I was able to get that out, that that, that um, kind of, you know, that shock that you feel when you finally get the job, <laughs> I think, and, and you kind of keep pinching yourself, like, do they really know that they, that they, was this a mistake? You know, that feeling. Um, Makes subsided for me a lot during the postdoc, and so by the time I, I got into at Indiana as a faculty, I felt pretty um, well grounded. It's also an incredibly warm and welcoming department, so that helped. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you've now taught at two very large, very well-known public institutions. Yeah. Um, are there any differences? Uh, that you have found in terms of interaction with students or colleagues, the states are very different, right? Uh, the parts of the country are very different. 
right? So how would you, how, how does that factor into the academic life? Yeah, I mean, there's a few answers. Some of them are probably less interesting to new scholars who might be your listeners. I think as, as you might be able to appreciate the, the kind of most striking difference for me is that the UC system, unlike Indiana, um, is very faculty driven. So there's a lot of faculty governance, um, which sounds great on paper. It also means there's an endless amount of meetings <laughs> and committees and decisions and votes. And Indiana, although it was a state institution, was very, is, is, is um, at least when I was there and historically, relatively speaking, much more top down, right? Is much more administratively driven. And so, you know, there's of course sometimes complaints about faculty not having a say in the process, but it also really, um, you know, means reduces the, the service load also in some nice ways. So there are kind of pros and cons, but that's a really striking difference in my personal experience, which has less to do with the classroom or research, but more to do with all of the other time that you have to spend being a faculty so that, you know, which matters. But um, of course, it's the faculty, it's the research and the teaching that's often the most rewarding. So figuring out the ways to do the service in, in a manageable way can be tricky. Um, yes, you see is um, very faculty driven. And I mean, one thing that I love and I'm still kind of figuring out ways to exploit this in cool ways is just that there's just a much larger Latino population here, right? Um, UCSB is a Hispanic serving institution, which um, I think, I forget what the actual number may is. Maybe you know the kind of percent of Latinos in the undergraduate population that you have to kind of receive that designation. But um, I have many more here, which is fantastic. And um, yeah, I, I um, haven't mentored Latino students yet at the graduate level, but I'm just taught my first digital divide course this year. It was the first time um, I tried to teach that to undergraduates. And um, that classroom had students, many of whom were Latino, but were who were all interested in inequality. Like that's why they were in the classroom, not just because you know, I had a class that had the word social media in it and it sounded cool. I mean, those students are fun too, but they're not always there because they care about changing the world. And so getting to talk to students who care about inequality, many of whom themselves, you know, come from um, uh, kind of disadvantaged backgrounds um, was really rewarding. So I, I really look forward to kind of continuing that. Okay. So, so you recently were promoted to associate professor with tenure. Congratulations. Um, how did you experience that process? How did I experience that process? Well, I'm pretty sure I got my letter confirming that I got tenure about three days after the entire world shut down. And so I'm pretty sure I experienced it by going, okay, I'll deal with that later. And I set it in a pile and I tried to figure out how I was going to <laughs> educate my son and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it got a little bit lost in the <laughs> hubbub, um, of, of the pandemic. Um, but I think it, um, Annie Lang once told me that, you know, you kind of, ex the, the benefits of tenure kind of get better every day. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of a slow uh, reward that kind of slowly sinks in over time. And so I think I've, I've experienced that way. I don't know if that, how do you, does that, what do you, I'm curious how you would answer that question. Um, with disbelief, 
first, uh, like getting a job for the first time, and um, a feeling of liberation, essentially, uh, that sank in probably six, seven years after, <laughs> like what you are describing, uh, that fully sank in. But I would say uh, my first reaction was disbelief. When I got my letter, I I, I I sat down, read it, and I couldn't stand up because I I could not. Understand. I was also I, I was tenured at the institution that was different from the institution I was at. Mm. I wasn't tenured from within. I was tenured as part of my process mm. of changing institutions. Oh wow! So uh, so also I was not in there while I was being tenured. Being evaluated, so I think that's also a different uh, experience. But um, so I mean, for for many assistant professors, it is a very uh, difficult period because of the pressure and knowing that the clock is ticking. Um, you were very successful at publishing, particularly publishing in high impact venues and 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 very important research. So. So how did you sort of decide about which studies to publish, whether to go for high impact, low impact, middle impact, et cetera? How, how do you, you know, work around those issues, right? Of the day-to-day -day yeah. scholarly life? I don't know, that's such a good question. If I had the answer, I'd be even more, be more successful, but um, I, I don't know, I think, I, I do kind of tend to think of my work kind of as the stuff I was raised to do, academically raised in my graduate training, which is much more psychological. And, um, you know, I was kind of trained experimentally. I had psych background and um, Jeff Hancock, my advisor is a psychologist. He has a psych degree. And so um, that component of my work was um, primarily kind of question driven and, and very, uh, or just more theoretically driven. And so often then I think um, the, the decisions about where to try to publish those questions often um, kind of, you know, you were aiming for the best and, and went in the best journals. I, I am a journal person, not a book person. So that wasn't really a debate for me. I was always just kind of presumed, although someday I, I like to think maybe a book would be um, on the horizon, but not, not anytime soon. So I think those, those um, the success of those publications depended on, you know, what happened when you were done with the experiment, right? That's the thing with experiments. You don't always know, you don't always know what you're going to get, right? It's the beauty of testing kind of in that positivistic scientific model tradition. Um, and so if the data panned out and you were asking good theoretically driven questions, then sometimes you could aim for some really exciting um, top journals. But then the other side of my work um, that was more qualitative and really, I kind of, I think of it was kind of building from the ground up because it kind of, um, kind of the, the, the ideas behind it really arose out of the data for me. And I've kind of slowly tried to build up this construct um, of technology maintenance. That work then also very, I was very strategic and intentional knowing that I wasn't just going to walk into JOC and say, hey, I have this new theoretical construct that I'd like to tell you about. <laughs> 
you know, that wasn't going to fly. And so I was quite strategic then or very intentional about saying, like, I knew I was going to have to aim for lower impact journals at first that were more niche, but would be really interested in the ideas. Um, so I think the first time I published that uh, work was in mobile media and communication, which is perfect. I love that journal. Um, it's such a great body of work, but it is very targeted and then was able to kind of build up from there and then published in New Media and Society. So finding kind of the, the journal that is um, um, open, not to just the questions, but also the tone of the work, right? I tend to ask social scientifically studied questions or research like, um, you know, kind of on the nose, more or less social, social science, qualitative and quantitative. But I, I try to like have my work be informed by questions that maybe sometimes originate in other corners of calm um, that are more humanistic or cultural critical. And I, I try to kind of blend those in, in tone, if not in method exactly. And I think New Media Society is really open to that, um, which I so appreciate. So um, yeah, so I think it depends on the questions, the, the, the work, right, that you're building. And, and oh, I don't, that was a, a, not a very clear answer. That's a very good question. I don't, I don't know. It's uh, a great answer. No, yeah. it's, a, it's a great answer. I mean, it's, um, and I'm sure many people will relate to that. Um, another aspect of our job that um, is not really taught in curricula, but uh, it is increasingly more discussed, um, particularly in graduate education, is networking, mm. right? Um, so for some people, they, they love it. Some people, they dread it. Some people, it's a natural thing. Some people, it's not, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, what, what has been your take on it? Yeah, I think, um... I mean, again, I think I said at the top that for me, grad school, I kind of came into my own because it was like, oh, I get to just play and hang out and have beers with smart people and talk about ideas. So, you know, I think I love the networking part, but I think I only didn't, I didn't realize I was even networking so often, I think. And I think that's the best way to do it is what I realized because as a person who, um, really loves the high of checking something off her to-do list. I think I thought conferences felt like, I mean, if I'm really frank at the beginning, I was like, this is a waste of time. No one's really listening to the content of these talks, you know, we're all half checked out and we just go out and hang out with people. But, you know, what I realized now and, and love is that um, the payoff from you know, that beer with somebody in the corner at a conference can be very real. It's just not instantaneous, right? So um, so I, I love networking, at least in those spaces and just in general. Yeah, I think the older I get, the more I realize, I don't know about you, but the more I realize the value of networking. I mean, presumably you realize that you've built this entire beautiful network. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think, but I think the best way to do it is really just to have fun with people and, um, and play with people, kind of intellectually play with people, I think, personally. Okay. Now, when you do that, you encounter all kinds of people um, with all kinds of ideas. I mean, part of your service work at UCSB, at least, based on what I've read on, on your vita, has to do with DI type issues. Mm -hmm. um, so 
you know, how do you see the field of communication, not UCSB or any particular department, but the field of communication and media studies, um, you know, addressing issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access? Yeah. What has been done? What hasn't been done? What could be done? Major hurdles. Yeah, right. It's such an interesting moment that we're living in. I, 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 um, I sometimes wonder like what what this is how this is all gonna shake out and what um how much of this is really gonna stick and I, I hope it does um I I think that UCSB you know I, I don't know but the little I talk to other people friends colleagues at different universities about this explicitly it seems like we are following the path of so many institutions right now where we're trying to have this kind of internal reckoning and I think we've done a, a good job I think that the but that means that, you know, when you're taking on new institutional change, that, that those growing pains can be kind of hard sometimes. Because again, you're coming butting up against these really slow-moving, archaically built institutions. And um, so, but um, but I think uh, so. You know, all I can do is speak to my department. I'm in the field a little bit, but I, I think the, the progress is real. I do think that if we can, I mean, at least my personal take is if we can kind of take the opportunity, the influx of dollars from states and institutions to, to trying to affect this change and then use it to make institutional change that will last, right? To actually put policies in place at department and university levels that will then increase the number of you know, underrepresented minorities at all levels of education, and um, which I think is possible, right? So rethinking hiring practices, rethinking representation in the classroom. I mean, you don't need me to go into detail about what that means, um, we, all, we all know. Um, but I, I think it's, it's personally been a really, really exciting time to be a scholar and to be a scholar who's just got tenure. So I'm kind of new enough in the process that I've got some energy still, but I'm, and I'm, I'm still kind of in awe, awed by um, the workings of academia, but um, um, maybe, don't, maybe don't know enough to, to always even know what I'm in for. Um, but it, but yeah. I, I feel really lucky and proud to be uh, at an institution that is really taking steps to make change, but um, I think we're still figuring it out too. I don't know. Right. That's a kind of a vague answer, but. Um, no, 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 but it's, I, I mean, I, I understand it. So, so then to build up on that, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, um what would you wish for um oh um that's such a good question and you you you've come there from a slightly different place than i expected when i first um let's let me let me think about that first <laughs> take as much time as you need also, I had to, uh, in that moment that I was thinking, I had to let the cat out before he started <laughs> making lots of uh, inappropriate noise. Um, I mean, I think, 
I will give an equally vague answer, but I, I think that the thing that I love about communication is what a broad field it is that we have um, so, you know, methodologically, epistemologically come from so many different places. And, and I really love that. I know that sometimes that has created kind of territorial um, conflicts within departments, but, but personally, I have always found the kind of my most interest, my personally, my work to be um, best fed when I am in a space where I'm able to absorb all of the different perspectives of what is communication, or at least at that intersection of technology and media. And I think, I'm guessing you find this in, in the center, right? That um, media scholars in particular have been, you know, historically kind of embracing of this, whether that's from like the AIR community, AOIR community, to even kind of the ICA version of ComTech, which I think are very different, but to be able to kind of weave in and out of these spaces. And so um, I also think that positions us to be leaders in kind of progressive thinking when it comes to issues of representation too, right? I think that we are like an open-minded community, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I guess if I could become like a magical genie and snap my fingers, um, well, ugh, I mean, it, it would be to kind of skip over the growing pains, but also kind of um, that, that it come with trying to become more inclusive, um, but also do it not just, um, that we kind of um, embrace what we've learned by, become, by being a methodologically diverse field and kind of apply some of those lessons to kind of issues of demographic representation as well and kind of um, appreciate the, the, the finest moments that come with that um, kind of um, diversity of, of perspective. Um, yeah, so, so very, very high-minded. I'm not sure what that means on the ground, but... Um, but it, but that is that is how I feel about the field, and it's something I really love about it. So I think it shows. I think we have a lot of potential to to really um, be be leaders on this front. So. All right. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for sharing your journey and your experiences with uh, us. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us uh, to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. 